Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. I'm Matthew Biancanello, and my new book is called Eat Your Drink, Culinary Cocktails. Eat Your Drink is a collection of gorgeous culinary cocktails that follow the structure of a meal. The book is divided up by courses. Describe the courses. So the courses are just like the courses of a meal, pretty much, that you would experience. So you have the amuse-bouche, the first course, second course, main course, dessert, and after dinner. These drinks in those sections standing on their own as a course, that you would, could do a flight of these things for a meal or for a presentation or for a pairing as well. My whole concept was I, I feel like I had really gone beyond just doing farmer's market cocktails and, and things that I grew or things that I foraged. And I think it was much more, I always looked at it much more that I was more of a chef coming from a chef's point of view. And that um, it was the expression of that, but also that I, you know, so many people kept saying, oh my God, this is like a meal. I don't have to eat or this or that. So that's where the whole name Eat Your Drink came out of. And then really to really kind of sum it up is that it is culinary and it is, it is, it's food, it's the ingredients in the food first, the alcohol is secondary, basically. Kind of like I feel more appropriate that the slow drink movement because it's really kind of taking all of these steps and really curating pretty much everything that goes into that glass. So, you know, really being conscious of what the alcohol you're using, what the sweetener you're using, knowing the limes that you picked, knowing the ingredients in the farmers you got that from or where you got it from in the forest or whatever it is. So to me, it's more about that whole slow drink really kind of explains it because it's really curating every step of it. And that's, that's what excites me and that's what keeps me inspired and keeps, keeps the passion really flowing. So you were in advertising, an yeah. animal trainer in... Yeah. Art sales. Yeah. So what drew you to the library bar at Hollywood's Roosevelt Hotel? Well, Susie, the thing that really was is I just really needed a job. And I, you know, it's funny. It's, with, it's one of those things I think a lot of people had done service industry jobs, you know, in, in the beginning of their lives. And I never did that. So it was very interesting towards, you know, I want to say towards the end of my life, but later on in my life, I started doing, I really just needed a job. I happened to know the manager at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, Tiffany Russo. She was in my yoga class for years. And she's like, well, I know this quiet little bar, you know, you don't really have any experience. You could kind of go in there and, um, you know, and, and slowly learn. And I remember the weekends were kind of, were kind of busy because it was a hotel. But during the week, it was a ghost town, and the money was really, really good. And I was like, God, this is kind of great. But what happened was, was during that off time, I was so dead. You know, I think I was there Tuesdays and Wednesdays uh, nights and Sunday nights where I started going to the farmer's market. I started going to different, um, you know, just getting different ingredients. I remember one day she tried one of my drinks. She goes, oh, my God, this is incredible. What's in this? I go, well, it's just, you know, fresh pomegranate juice. And she said, you're, you're buying this out of your own pocket? I said, yeah. She goes, well, I'll, I'll start reimbursing you $100 a week. Well, I was spending $400 a week. This was all um, kind of the beginning of the cocktail movement that was happening in Los Angeles. I mean, I spent easily um, eight to $9,000 out of my own pocket, you know, just 
kind of educating myself, but also getting really excited about all these ingredients that I've never seen before and these farmers from all over and all of that. And I remember somebody asked me for a cosmopolitan, and I had to duck down and say to the woman next to me, what's in a cosmopolitan? <laughs> and, I, and I remember she told me, but she was using sour mix. And I was like, here's the deal. I'm not going to use sour mix. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I remember just people waiting, even in the very beginning, for me to squeeze all of these limes or lemons from, from, from hand. You know what I mean? And it was, I remember it was, just a, it was a big deal. But that was, the, that was kind of the incarnation of what I was going to do and what was to come. Here's the old chicken or the egg question. You base your drinks on your natural surroundings. Now, does the recipe pop in your head first, or do you get ideas from gardening, farmers, markets, and foraging? That's a great question, because I I think it's both. I think it's a combination now, because I've been doing this a while, that um, April's coming up, and I'm thinking about what did I get last year. It's really, let's just say, let's just pick a random ingredient like passion fruit. Let's just say passion fruit is coming up again. And I can already say ahead of time, okay, what can I do differently with passion fruit? You know what? I love this drink, and I know this is always going to be a classic that I'll introduce to people. But what can I do differently with passion fruit? I really taste in my head, so I start to get ideas about what I'm going to do with passion fruit. But then the slip, the other side of that, what you were saying, is I recently had the opportunity to travel to 10 countries in the last five months, six months. And I was really now going to places and exploring just what I would do here, produce and things like that that I hadn't seen before. So it was interesting. I would get off the plane thinking about the drink I was going to make and some things that kind of people told me were, were there. But then I always left myself open for something to strike me or to change or to inspire me or to be a new flavor. So I loved using sea moss in St. Lucia. Breadfruit was something that totally took me by surprise in Tahiti. Um, I know it's very common and very well known in the Mutiny and the Bounty book and so forth, but I still didn't think anything of it. And what was amazing about it was I tasted it, and this was something that was really a big part of their culture. But when you cooked it in the fire, that's what was so surprising. So you would take it whole, you would stick it in the fire with a stick, and it literally became inside like bread or a brioche. And I ended up making an alcoholic ice cream with that, with incredible Tahitian vanilla and Calvados and these other things. And I think that really sticks out to me because I think it sticks out to me because of how much that fruit changed when you cook it. And I never necessarily cook my things when I'm making drinks. Usually I'm taking them in their raw form or I'm infusing them. But it's very rare that I'm cooking something to get some kind of flavor or texture out of it. So I think that was really, really, really surprising to me. And then the fruits and so forth in Colombia just blew my mind, the tropical fruits in Colombia, things I've never tasted before and uh, really, really unusual flavors. But I I would say that breadfruit really stuck out. Cocktail ice is judged by its clarity, density, size, and cut. What do you think about premium ice? Well, I'm a big fan of it. There's actually um, a, a company here that really does it right in Los Angeles called Neve Ice. And he doesn't really tell people too much about how he does it. But I know he uses some kind of reverse osmosis water and uh, the, way, the way that, um, you know, it's, it's a much more dense ice cube. So it's not just about that you have these big cubes or you have them clear. It's the quality of water as well. So the quality of water has to be great. And then his, the way that he processes it, 
a cube will actually take a two by two inch rocks cube will actually take about three hours to melt. Where you could make that cube on its own, it would probably be gone in an hour. So I am a big fan of it, but I'm not a big fan of, you know, just not having great quality water. It really, it really is about the water because that's going to change the, the quality of the cocktail as well. Describe your favorite drink in the book. So I, I describe it to everybody the same way. I have my favorite drink to drink and my favorite drink to make. And it hasn't changed in six years. Um, my favorite drink to drink is called the Rockette. And it's a wild arugula gimlet. And it's basically gin, lime juice, agave, and wild arugula. And there's a specific arugula that I get here from Paso Robles called arugula rustica, which is extra spicy and bitter. And it's basically, the best way to describe it is like a gin mojito. And I love it because it's a simple drink. It's, it's, a, it's a very strong, unique flavor on its own. So you really don't have to do anything else to it. And it goes so well. I could drink it any time. So it could be something that you're drinking during the day, like a gin, if you're a gin and tonic drinker, which I am, or it really goes well with food and meals. So it's a, it's a perfect drink to have with a steak or, or, or just food that might be a little bit more substantial. I don't want to say heavy, but substantial. And then my favorite drink to make, because it really breaks the rules, is the last tango in Modena. And... You know, if you look at a lot of drinks and you look at a lot of my drinks, too, they're really based on a formula. It really, it's really derived from the daiquiri that was created in Cuba in the 30s. And it really was, you know, spirit, citrus, and sugar. You know, and if you take the rum out and you put gin, you've got a gimlet. If you put mint in, you have a mojito. If you take the rum out in particular, you have a margarita. So the last tango in Modena kind of breaks all those rules where I'm not using any citrus and I'm not using any sugar, and it's not a stirred drink, but I'm using balsamic vinegar, which is a mixture of aged balsamic. So it's very sweet and it's got a little bit of a sourness to it. That's kind of taking care of both the sweet and the sour. And then I'm using incredible strawberries that we have here from a farm called Harry's Berries, the Gaviotas, which is a really, really strong strawberry flavor. And then gin, and then I always wanted to make a foam, you know, years ago. And this great bartender in town called uh, Vincenzo Maranella, he, I remember I was going up to him. I said, listen, I need to make this foam, and I, I'm testing things with gelatin and all this stuff, and it just, I don't, I don't like the texture of it. It doesn't really look right. It doesn't feel right. He told me that, no, just mix equal parts of egg whites with the alcohol because it's sweet enough. As long as it has a high sugar content, double charge it with nitrous, and you've got a foam. And I told him, well, I want to do it with St. Germain. He goes, well, you don't want to do it with that. It's too expensive. And, but, that was, but that was the thing. I was in a hotel, which is another rare opportunity. Nobody really kind of micromanaged me. They, as long as I was, sales were going up and I was getting a lot of press, no one really told me what to do. So that drink really became my huge signature drink. Cause it, and it's very, very simple. It's gin, strawberries, and balsamic vinegar. You muddle it, and then the foam is so easy to make if you have an ISI container. So something that, like that can be look so sophisticated and so intricate and yet be really one of the most simple cocktails. So it's, it's, a, it's a drink that I love to make because I know how people are going to react to it, but I also know that it, it, it's just a fun drink that breaks all the rules that makes me proud, I guess. Now, with the Rockette, you said that it's a great drink for meals. When thinking about a drink for meals, is it is it a drink that doesn't get in the way or... Does that's it complement? That's a great question because, you know, you, you know, I've done a lot of 
I've done a lot of food things, but there's a, the the um, the chef who wrote the foreword for my book, Roberto Cortez, is an amazing, amazing chef, and we've done a bunch of pop-ups, and he's really one of the first chefs. Because I've done consulting in a lot of places, and I think a lot of chefs don't want you to overshadow them, you know, just in general. Not just me, but just, you know, that. And Roberto was never afraid of that. So it was kind of how I felt like these things should be paired, should be great on their own, but definitely should complement what, what, what it's being served with. And I used to do 10 courses with Roberto, and each one, I could say, could stand on its own or or complement it as well. And to me, that's what I'm striving for. Because I remember these people showed up with $5,000 worth of wine one night. And they looked at me and said, hey, listen, I'm really, really sorry. I'm not, I'm, I, you know, I didn't know you were going to be here, and I'm a wine person. I said, listen, no problem. About two drinks into it, he put his wine away. And he goes, I'm so sorry. I had no idea what you, know, what you were doing and how different this is and how much it complements the food and how well thought out it is and how delicious it is. And that was really a huge, huge compliment that here I am working with this amazing chef and then I had this guy who brought $5,000 worth of wine who put it aside. It just continued to encourage me and gave me strength to um, really just want to continue to complement and find flavors. But I'm, I'm also influenced by chefs and influenced by food. So it's a challenge when I see a menu and I have to do something to complement that. Last night, I made your recipe for Mexican apple pie. How did it come on out? On page 115. It was lovely. Um, I just want to say I have so much respect for you now after making that because it, <laughs> it definitely took a bit of preparation. But it was, it was so good. And I froze the Honeycrisp. and oh, it was it was I love Honeycrisp. It's one of my favorite apples. And I'm in New York City, so they're very, very easy to find. Yeah, that makes sense. So it got me thinking about a bar full of patrons and these gorgeous cocktails. How do you balance preparation and the amount of people you're waiting on? That's another great, you have great questions, by the way. And a lot of questions that people haven't really asked me before. So I love it because I've given a lot of thought and I've adjusted over the years to it. So I think the greatest thing is... um, I do a lot of private events, so this is something that I care about the quality, and I never really um, sacrifice the quality. Um, But sometimes I'll have crowds of 100, 150 people, and I don't batch anything as well. And I think that the biggest challenge came about three years ago when it wasn't about how fast I could make the drinks. What was really getting in the way is people were coming to see me as well and kind of get the whole experience. So it's not just about making drinks. It's a whole experience. I'm very much about, you know, pleasing people and giving people a great experience. So, yes, I want to make a great drink and I want to make something that's specific for them. But it was also about the experience. And I could see that people were starting to get frustrated because my time was really being divided now. I decided that I wasn't going to be behind the bar. I have an incredible right-hand man, Luke Fisher, and really great staff that basically I do all the preparation. I give them the recipes, but I also, they're trained enough with me that usually I have all of these ingredients on the bar that once they've gone through the drinks and people have gone through the drinks, um, I want them to do omakase. I want them to do whatever they want to do, especially if they're feeling uh, the vibe of the customer in front of them. But what's great about this is now they get to do the drinks, and I'm more like a chef expediting where I'm coming up to them 
calling out drinks, but I'm also calling out combinations because I just spoke with someone at a table of what they might like. So that's the other thing is about four year, five years ago, I got rid of a menu at the library bar because one day a woman came in and she said, um, could, I'd like to drink you know, something sweet but not too sweet. And I actually gave her the last tango in Modena. And she goes, oh, my God, this is the best drink I've ever had. And I said, oh. She goes, well, what's in it? I said, well, it's got strawberries and balsamic vinegar. She goes, balsamic vinegar? She goes, I hate balsamic vinegar. Can you make me something else? And I said, you just told me it was the best drink you've had. She goes, I know, but I hate balsamic vinegar. <laughs> so that was the first time I was like, you know what? I am not going to have a menu anymore. I'm going to, everyone's going to come in. It's going to be omakase, and it's going to be personalized to them. And I think in those last two years at the library bar, people were really spoiled of kind of, and rightfully they should be because, you know, these, these drinks are $15, $16. And I understand that, you know, I wanted it to be more than just like you were paying for quality, but the experience, but I really went to every single person and would ask them, what do you like? What are your flavor profiles? And not just what are your flavor profiles in general, but did you just eat right now? Are you about to go to dinner? Are you full? Are you looking for a little pick-me-up? Do you want something lighter in alcohol? So it was a combination of flavors, but then those circumstances. And I think so what happened was that started to get lost. People were used to that personal attention, and I started to get mobbed. So now I went out to every single table in the pop-up, and I would come back and get the drinks, and then I could go back and have a conversation. So now I was bringing the bar to the tables, and it solved the problem. We were able to do uh, – I remember that one time we did 150 cocktails in five hours, my style. You know what I mean? Wow. Uh, which was really impressive and even got higher, I think, as we got better the second season. So that's really what I did is, you know, I wanted people to know that this is something that, like, you made this for yourself at home. And, you know, who's to say how many home bartenders necessarily would be making drinks for a lot of people. But I think they'd be able to hold their own to a party up to 25, you know, 10 to 25 people. I really do. And I think that it was anything else that takes practice, but it's really about the, the, I would do more and more preparation ahead of time, but nothing was batched. And um, that just became a really successful way of me really now not being behind the bar and being more of a chef and expediter. Where can we find you on the web? MatthewBianconello.com. And again, I'm also working on a TV show, which is why I went to those uh, 10 countries which is to be announced, I'm the host of a new show about cocktails that hopefully will hit the air at the end of this year. And that's going to be, it's an amazing experience because it's basically me going to each location, finding locals, finding local ingredients, and then at the end, I make drinks for them. So it's a, it's a really great thing because it's not just me kind of going around tasting. I have to, at the end, really kind of interpret what my what my experience was. Wonderful. Thanks, Matthew, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me and have a wonderful day.